We are in Parshat Beha'alotcha this morning. We are in the uh, third triennial division of Beha'alotcha. Have you seen the other music stand? The big one? The conductor stand? Okay. Oh, probably from that drummer. From the musical. Those drummers. You know, you can't... Right? You just can't expect them. The guy with the Bible. You can't expect them to bring anything back. That was so hilarious. So we are going to look at uh, chapter 11 this morning of the book of Numbers. Affectionately known by many of our scholars as Sefer Kfetch. Um, and there's uh, an interesting parallel between a lot of the stories in Numbers um, and the book of Exodus. Um, an interesting parallel between the issue of water and quail and you know, the kinds of complaints. What's fascinating is in the book of Exodus, those usually result in God answering the people with what they are needing or complaining about not having. Uh, and in the book of Numbers, it doesn't seem to go quite that way, as we're going to see this morning. So chapter 11, verse 1. 854 in green. 854 in the women's Torah commentary. 827 in Eitzchayim. 827 in the red. All right. Does somebody want to begin at 11-1? The people... The people took to complaining bitterly before the Lord. The Lord heard and was incensed. A fire of the Lord broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. The place was named Tevarah because a fire of the Lord had broken out against them. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving. And then the Israelites wept and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look to. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is the Hebrew for We're going to talk about that. Oh, good. So go on and just finish out that part of the Now manna. the manna was like coriander seed. And in color, it was like dellum. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. Okay. So we're in the wilderness, right? And vayhi uh, ha'am kemit onanim. So they begin to... Lehit onain, a reflexive verb that's like, it means more like nagging, right? So like a great dog trainer once said to me, if you give a dog a command more than once, you're nagging, <coughs> right? Like it's not experienced in a good way. Like it's, you know, just to kind of repeat something and lehit um, onain is also kind of like this, uh, like to mumble, to grumble, to... You know, you get the image of saying it under your breath, you know, just kind of, I can't believe, I only had, you know, right? Um, Doesn't reflexive mean like to themselves? So it one, yeah. right, like one does it to oneself. So it's almost like talking to oneself. So almost like complaining with no point, right? It's not like, gee, it's hot in here. 
that might be followed by, oh, let's get Rod back in here mm-hmm. to change it. It's, I hate it when it's so hot outside and I have to come here and I have to wear, put on long mm-hmm. sleeves and a jet, right? It's just that kind of, so you're doing it to yourself. There's just no purpose to it, right? Mother, um, mother. Not solution-oriented. It's not solution-oriented. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so we don't know what the word raw exactly goes with. You could put it with mit onanim, right? So it's kind of evil, bad, wicked, grumbling. Or it's ra be'ozne Adonai. It's evil in the ears of God, right? That their complaining is experienced by God as ra, as just mean, right? Just wicked. Vayishma Adonai. And God heard. That's usually a good thing, right? When God hears. Because usually what you're offering is a supplication or a prayer, right? When you're heat onaning, right? And God hears, <coughs> not a good thing. Vayichar apo, God's nostrils flared, right? When God's nostrils flare, oh boy. <laughs> not a good thing, right? Vativ ar bam. Right? And God is absolutely incensed and sends Boer to burn, right? So God causes Esh, a fire, to burn. And it, it ate the edges of the camp. Let's hold off on what that might mean until we look further at what's going on. So now that the fire is consuming the edges of the camp, now the people cry out. To whom? Moshe. To Moshe. <laughs> right? They cry to Moshe. And what does Moshe do? The consummate prophet, right, always dealing with interceding on behalf of the people. If he knows it's coming, he tries to mitigate it. If he doesn't know it's coming, as in this case, he doesn't seem to know it's coming, then he prays. For He intercedes on the people's behalf, and it is effective. What's, what's interesting is that it always works, right? It always works, and it seems, and we've looked at certain texts where it seems that God is inviting Moshe's intercession, right? When God says, step away, that I might destroy them. What? Moses doesn't have to step away for God to destroy the people if that's what God wants to do. God can send a lightning bolt that strikes them where they are. So God seems to be inviting Moshe in that text um, to challenge God, right? To do his job, which is to intercede for the people, which might inform something about our story. So hold that. So Moshe prays on behalf of the people. It works. And the fire, right, diminishes. It dies down. And they called that place Tivaera, right? Because Ba'aravam Esh Adonai, because God burned them up with, with fire. Asaf Suf. This is the word riffraff. Asaf Suf. Asher Bekirbo, that was in their midst. Hit Avu Ta'ava. They cr- literally, I'm going to translate it literally for a reason, because it's a great commentary that I heard. 
Hit ava. They craved a craving. Right? Vayashuvu. So they, they craved this craving and they, what, what does your translation have for Vayashuvu? Vayashuvu Vayivku. So they did something and they wept. Gambane Israel, also the people Israel. As soon as we see this, also the people Israel, the Asaf Suf must not be the people Israel. Right? We're told that the Asaf Suf was part of the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that went out of Egypt. It seems that is who's starting the business of mumbling and grumbling and complaining. Because, and then it's catching and the Israelites start. Right? So they are not immune. But it seems the Asaf Suf the riffraff among them started it. So some, some commentators go to your question of who, what is this riffraff, Asaf Suf? We are not sure. It could mean the Erev Rav, the folks who kind of took avail, availed themselves of the opportunity to leave with the Israelites. It could be that it's kind of the riffraff among the Israelites who aren't really part of society, right? That they're not part of... Everybody has... Every- Group has riffraff. Every group has riffraff that kind of puts itself where? At the edges. And that maybe that's what this means that the fire broke out at the edges, not of the land, but it says the edges of the camp where the riffraff tends to hang out. Right? They don't like to be usually in this. They want to be off somewhere where they can do what they're going to do and not. Right? Outside the box. Suburbs. So, <laughs> Sunset Mesa. <laughs> right? The outskirts, right? Where they can, where there's a little more freedom to do what they're going to do that the rest of the population might not be so happy about. Right? You know, I, we all know somebody who no matter what context you put them in is going to jump the fence and find a way to find the worst, right? Of, of wherever they go. And, and it's at the edges, of kind of acceptable, normative society. So we have our own understandings of what that might mean for people who have been marginalized, that this is different, right? These are people who have, by their own behavior, um, if you translate it that way, they've made themselves riffraff, or it's because of their circumstances or whatever, but they are not a positive influence on the people. So in either case, it's, it's not the whole people, but this, this riffraff, whatever that means, and B'nai Israel pick up on it. The, the people of Israel pick up on it, and what do they say? basar. Oi! If only, right? If only we had meat. We recall the fish that we ate in Mitzrayim for free. It was everywhere. And we do have texts that attest to the fact that the poor in Egypt ate garlic, leeks, beans, garbanzo, whatever those are called, chickpeas, um, lentils, and salted fish. So... 
It was abundant enough that even the poor wow. ate that in Egypt. So chinam, right? And etakishuim, so the cucumbers and the melons and the chatzir, the leeks and batsalim, the onions and shumim, the garlic. Ve'ata, and now, nafshenu yevesha, our gullets are shriveled. They're dried up. We have nothing but this man to eat. Right? And the man, so we have nothing but this man to look to. And then we get this afterthought, this description, um, that it is like coriander, right? Um, and we, it, we get something about the color, right? And what the color was like. So we're going to get a little bit more description about, about the man. Let's finish it out. So the people would go and they would gather it and grind it in millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. So what's wrong with that? That sounds delicious. Something that you can either boil or just eat like it is, meaning it's not that that it can only be served one way, but clearly they're bored. So the rabbis say, what is the sin exactly? So the rabbis look at exactly what they say. If only we had meat to eat. What do they have with them? What? Ha! 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 Well, the, the sin comes flocks. slightly later. Have the, sin. Not the sin. They have flocks. So they have meat. So the rabbis say if they have meat, what are they complaining about? This fish, consider it meat, consider it a protein, right? They got in Egypt... Chinam, free. We didn't have to kill our expensive goats in order to eat protein in Egypt. But now we would have to pay a lot of, you know, a lot of wealth, meaning your flock is your wealth. We, we, we'd have to sacrifice that, literally, right, to eat meat now. That they're complaining that they're not getting it for nothing. So not only did they get fish, they got veggies. They got fruit. They got three squares a day for nothing. So what is the sin of that? What is the sin of them saying that? So they're not appreciating the fact that they're being fed. What is the problem with them saying, but in Egypt we got all these wonderful foods? They were slaves and now they're free. So they are, they are equating how God is treating them with slavery. Really? Says God, really? Really? These are the same things? Right, yeah, you got leeks and garlic and onion and you were oppressed. So for the rabbis, this is the sin. And they point to this craving cravings 
and say, their sin was not craving meat. Nowhere does it say they craved meat. What does it say? They craved a craving. Well, they were displaced people. Mm -hmm. They were slaves, that was, and they got food. And that was familiar. They were attached to certain things. Most people, when they move from one place to another and they're not slaves, they miss something. Mm -hmm. the, text, the text says they were free from bondage. So that's pretty profound. Yeah. Right. So that they, so they're, they it's what they know clearly. PTSD. You know, like that. They're, they're attached to what they knew, even as horrible as it was. So we can understand that. So the rabbis are still looking for what's the real sin. Yeah. And they say it's that they craved a craving. They were satisfied with the mana. They were sated, and because they were sated, they were bored. And they mm -hmm. craved having a craving, right? They craved, oh, oh, that's interesting. The, the, they were sated. They had, the mana took care of every nutritional need they had and that was boring. And so they craved having a craving. And that is the height of being Jewish. <laughs> being Jewish. Maybe of being human, maybe. But of, of a lack of gratitude, a lack of, you know, of awareness of what we have and the ability to give, you know, thanks for, for what we have. So we, so we get this description of the mana, um, which has an interesting, you know, history. There is this, this substance in the Sinai Peninsula that happens uh, at night, and it melts by the time of sunrise, so... It makes sense that you would collect it in the morning, and it's very rare, and there's not a lot of it. Um, so the miracle is not mana, right? Mana, we think we know the basis scientifically for what they're talking about. The miracle is, as always, not what happens, but that it happens when the people need it, in the amount they need, right? So it's taking a recognizable phenomenon, like the plagues, when people want to explain scientifically how the plagues happen. Nobody's arguing that the plagues weren't a science, that science couldn't explain why one thing led to another. That's not the point. The point is that it happens when Moshe raises his staff, right? That it happens when it happens, exactly when it's needed by the people in exactly the amount that's needed by the people. That's, the, that's what's miraculous, not the mana itself. So Moshe, what happens? Somebody read at 10. Moses heard the people weeping, every clan apart, at the entrance of each tent. Adonai was very angry, and Moses was distressed. And Moses said to Yudhei Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not enjoyed your favor, that you have laid the burden of all these uh, this people upon me? Did I produce all this people? Did I engender them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a caretaker carries an infant to the land that you have promised on oath to their fathers? Where am I to get the meat to give to all these people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry all these people by myself, for it is too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, kill me rather, I beg you, and let me See no more of my wretchedness. Okay. 
This is not good. Right? This is really not good. <laughs> so the people are complaining in a way that is likely to bring down the wrath, right, of God again. And Moshe hears, what does Moshe hear? He hears the people weeping, right? Literally, each person with his family, meaning it's universal now. Every tent has somebody at the entrance complaining. If they're at the entrance of the tent, what does that signify? And what, what, why does it matter that it's at the entrance? That's what you're going to hear if you go inside. <laughs> That's what, you they're not even, them. you can see, see them. It, and they're, they're doing it, if you're at the entrance of the tent, presumably you're not facing in, you're facing out. You're, it's now a public, defiant, right? It's now a public demonstration, but everybody's still in their tent, right? So, um, but they're, it's public now. It's become open and defiant. And God was very angry. So what happens when God gets very angry with the people, right? Really bad things. So vayichar afadonai, God's nostrils flare. Same, word, same thing we had happen just a minute before. Uve'enei Moshe ra. And and in the eyes of Moshe, Ra, it was wicked. What was wicked? What was evil? What was bad? The weeping. Either the weeping or? Or God's reaction. Or God's reaction. Does, does Ra have anything at all to do with the Egyptian? No. In our case, no. But if you would like to make a case... <laughs> For the word in Hebrew being evil, being the name of one of the gods of Egypt, the Vakasha, I would look forward to reading that dissertation. I think it's interesting. So it's so what you'd have to do in your research is find out how early the word Ra appears in in the pre submit the pre Hebrew of Ugarit and Samaria and Akkadian and and how early it appears as a god of Egypt. Yes? And I look forward to reading it. So it's a long weekend, exactly. You get a head start. So, right. So, so maybe it's the weeping that Moshe understands as Ra. Maybe it's God's reaction. Maybe it's what Moses is about to say. The thing that Moshe sees as Ra is what he's about to say, meaning his fed upness, meaning his state. Right. He it can refer to Moshe's own state. In any case, it seems, Moshe has had it. This is one of the only cases we see of Moshe failing to be an intercessor for the people. Because now he's, now he's not, he's disregarding what they're saying, now he's making it about him. God's nostrils flare, and Moshe is supposed to go, wait, don't. Remember this people that you took out of Egypt. They're your people, right? What will people say if you destroy them now? We know they're ungrateful, but they're slaves. They give them a right? Moshe intercedes. And Moshe fails here to intercede on behalf of the people. Not only does he fail to intercede, but he has a meltdown, right? Vayomer Moshe el Adonai. And Moshe says to God, Lama. Ha re ota le avdecha. 
Why have you been evil? Here's that word ra to your servant. Why have you been bad? Why have you been wicked, mean, evil to your servant? Vilama why have I not found favor in your eyes? Right? What is he talking about? Lasum. He thought he was doing God a favor. Lasum et masakol ha'am alai. To put the burden of this people on me. I thought you liked me. All I've done is serve you. Why have you given me this people? These are your people. So he too. They It's like the worst babysitting job ever. Right? Ha'anochi. Ha'anochi hariti et kol ha'am He's, oh, this is amazing. Did I conceive this people? I don't know what y'all's translation was, but it was not nearly as cool. Well, that's Produced. that's what this right. is here in the eighth time. Is conceived? Yes. Good, because right. right. this is so the women's commentary. This is a whole section right. they've changed. Did I produce? They say produce. Produce. Come on. This, this is, is about the word to get pregnant. Oh. Did I get pregnant with these people? Right? Did I bear them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a baby to the land that you've promised their ancestors? Meaning, they're not mine. Whose are they? They're yours, but not in the way it was at Sinai where Moshe says, they're your people. Don't hurt them. Right? Now, it's flipped. And Moshe's like, did I get pregnant with these people? Did I give birth to them? No. Why should they be my problem? They're your problem. So what does he say? Where am I going to get Basar to feed all these people? As they whine and fetch before me and say, give us meat to eat. Lo uchal anochi levadi laset et kol ha'am hazeh. I cannot by myself carry this people. He's done. Ki kaved mi meini. It is too heavy for me. I've <laughs> been there. I've never been there with the Jewish people, ever. And if it's going to be so, essentially, kill me, please. <laughs> right? Kill me. <laughs> If I have found favor in your eyes, right, that I might see no more of my evil, of, of the, right, of the wrongness, that, that, of my wretchedness, right? It's tough to be a leader. It's, it is tough to be a leader. And Moshe completely loses it here. Completely. So the commentators all point to the fact that Moshe is saying, I can't do it levad by myself. What does he seem to be asking for? Help. Help. From whom? From God. And he gets it. And he gets it. He's setting him up. But not exactly from God. So this commentator, in a very long excursus, Milgram, at the back of my book, 
has a very long discussion of this piece and says, this is Moshe's sin. Moshe sins by not interceding for the people. He fails to do his job. And because of that, he asks God for help. And instead, God gives him human help and diminishes Moshe's own rank in a way, like his own authority. stature, his own authority, his own exclusive um, experience of, of prophecy of this kind. I'm not saying I agree, I'm saying it's an interesting reading that Moshe fails in the eyes of God to do his job. It's, a it's tough to be a leader, suck it up. You can whine to Tzipora later, but right now, I'm a, my, do you not see my nostrils flaring? Right? These people are in serious trouble, and you're whining? What else might Moshe's sin be here? I, I just want to say that it's possible, I think, to have another interpretation. Uh, I hope so. That, that God recognized that uh, a person needs other people around them to, you know, like there was a scene previously. With Yitro. Exactly, where Yitro gives him advice, which sets up governments forever. And here again, there's that saying, share the burden. So that is the other reading. There are two readings. Either God is taking Moshe to task for his response, or God responds to Moshe's issue and gives him what he needs. Mm -hmm. So the, the folks who criticize Moshe and understand this as not good behavior, what do they point to? One, he's melting down and not interceding for the people. What else? He's making it all about him. Yes, and, and in what way is it, is it borderline really dangerous that he makes, him, makes it about him? What does he say? He's saying, kill me. He's saying, Kill me, I can't do it. What else? Where am I to get meat to feed this people? Really? Really? So all of a sudden, Moshe thinks he's going to bring meat to feed this people? Who? He, right? He needs to be going to God and saying... You got people who are flipping out about not having meat. Deal with it, right? Moshe says, you know, there's not enough. There's not enough meat. And in the Midrash, Moshe goes on to say, even if I took every fish out of the sea, there's not enough to feed all these people. Even if I killed every one of our flocks, there's not enough meat to feed these people. What am I supposed to do? Kill me now. Right, so they magnify the fact that Moshe seems to be questioning whether or not it's possible to deal with their complaint. So God's read on that might be, really? Is there a limit all of a sudden to what I can do? Right, that you question that, that this is possible to take care of? Because of course, that's what happens next, is that God's, God takes care of it. So that God says to Moshe, watch this. And is that's why he's diminishing uh, uh, Moses's. So that's one read. One read is that God answers Moshe by bringing the quail, not the people's craving. Mm -hmm. That God says to Moshe, you are questioning 
whether or not I can handle this, watch this, <laughs> right? And, um, and then I'm going to bring 70 people along who are going to now take some of your ruach, some of your power to prophesy. All right, so let's look at that part of the text. How many people were here? Were where? Now, was this 600,000? 600, 600 LF. So either LF means thousand or LF means a troop. A troop. Yeah. So 600 troops. I mean, 600, what do you call a Bunches. Bunches. Thank you. <laughs> well, if it meant thousand, that was men. So that would have been, been maybe over a million people. That's a lot of meat. That's a lot of meat. Even 600,000 is over a half a million too. people. That's Wandering around the desert, I don't think so. I mean, six hundred thousand is you know like over half a million. That that's a lot of people. But that was the men. That was the the men only who could fight the six hundred. That I don't know. Yeah, I think. But it, either way, it's yeah. like it's a it's a lot, right? It's a lot. All right. So what does God answer? Look at verse. Somebody read it. Verse sixteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Gather for me seventy of Israel's elders." of whom you have experienced as elders and officers of the people, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you, and put it upon them. They, share, they shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. And say to the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you shall, for for you have kept whining before the Lord, and saying, "If only we had meat to eat! Indeed, we were better off in Egypt." The Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two, not even five days, or ten or twenty, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. For you have rejected the Lord who is among you, you by whining before him and saying, Oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? Go on. But Moses said, The people who are with me number 600,000 men. Yet you say, I will give them enough meat to eat for the whole month. Oh, this is so not good. Go on. <laughs> could, could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice them? Or could all of the fish of the sea be gathered for them to suffice them? And the Lord answers Moses, Is there a limit to the Lord's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. All right. So it does not seem that the quail are a sympathetic reward <laughs> to the people from an understanding divinity at this point. You want quail? You want meat? I'll give you quail. I'll give you quail. You're going to eat quail until it's coming out of your nostrils and you're nauseated by it. Right? You want, I've heard you whine about candy for how long? No problem. Here you go. All right? And you're going to eat candy for three days and nothing. Right? This is not a nice answer I mean this is this is not an answer of love and compassion and understanding so some people some commentators that's why they put the part about Moshe 
You know, the God's answer is unhappy with both cases, Moshe and the people. God's had it with both of them, right? And the, the, the thing that happens with Moshe getting help is not just a good thing, that, that God is frustrated with Moshe and says, I'm going to take from you and give to them. And I'm going to take all this quail and give it to these people for 30 days and force feed them. So, so this is like, um, all right, so, so we're now at verse, where were we, 16? So 70 of Israel's elders, of whom you have experience as elders and officers, bring them to the tent of meeting, and they're going to take their place with you. I will come down and speak with you there, not with them. Right? Moshe is still the only one that God is speaking with. And I will draw from the spirit that is on you. Ruach is the word used here. Wind, spirit, right? This is what pushes the waters apart for them to go through, right? This is that aspect of God. Wind, ruach. So I will draw from the ruach that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you and you won't be alone. You don't want to be alone? No problem. I'll take from you and give to them. Other commentators who read it like Sarah say, a candle lighting other wicks does not diminish the light of the candle. Right? That you, you can share from a source without it diminishing the original source. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, if, if the uh, if the board takes authority from the CEO and gives it to some of its subordinates, it <laughs> it changes yeah. the dynamic drastically, doesn't it? Sets the tone. And then says and say to the rest of the people. So that's what's happening with the seventy elders. Say to the rest of these people, purify yourselves, and you shall eat meat all right. Is there any significance to purification? So that's an excellent question. Um, So heat kadeshu, right? It's a reflexive verb that they should sanctify themselves, um, probably because God is getting ready to make God's self manifest in some way that they need to be ready to encounter that. So remember Sinai? They had to bathe and purify themselves and abstain from intercourse, right? And all those things in order to purify themselves to have the experience of God's presence on the mountain and that that experience of revelation. Um, So we don't know if it's like that it's going to be a miracle, right, or exactly what it's about, but it also precedes a sacrifice, that you you sanctify yourself before making a sacrifice, you offering a sacrifice. So it's unclear exactly why in the quail episode they need to sanctify themselves, and so they, so God enumerates what God is upset about, right? If only, you, you're saying you'd be better off in Egypt. Really? You'd be better off in Egypt? All right, you're going to have meat, and it's going to come out of your nostrils. For you have rejected Adonai who's among you by whining before God and saying, oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? Right? The, the un, what is ungratitude? What do you call ungratitude? Ungratitude. Hmm? Yeah, the, whatever the noun of that is, right? The ingratitude of the people is infuriating, right, to God. 
The English translation doesn't capture the nostril connection. It doesn't. Out God's nostrils flare, and God says, I'll give you meat. That's a problem right there. It'll come he's out of your nostrils. He's you so much, you know he's pissed. Out of the flaring of God's yeah, nostrils, God's going to give it to you yeah. till it's coming out of yours. That's a problem. Right. It's not good. So then Moshe really messes up, right? And says, have you seen how many people are here? Have you seen how many people are here? Like, where are we going to get that kind of meat? If I took all the fish from the sea, it wouldn't be enough. So you got to imagine at this point, God is not pleased. Right? So God says to Moshe, is there a limit to my power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. All right. So 24... Moses went out and reported the words of Adonai to the people. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Then, after coming down in a cloud and speaking to him, Adonai drew upon the spirit that was on him and put it upon the 70 representative elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, but did not continue. Go on. Two of the representatives, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in camp, yet the spirit rested upon them. They were among those recorded, but they had not gone out to, to the tent, and they spoke in ecstasy in the camp. An assistant ran out and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moses, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you brought up upon my account? Would that all Adonai's people were prophets, that Adonai put the divine spirit upon them. Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. All right. So Moshe goes out and says to the people what's about to happen. Right? He's got, they've got to sanctify themselves. He gathers 70 elders. Remember, the, the thinking was that there were 70 nations, right? Each has its own... Prince, right? So this, this, this 70 is a common number in the ancient Near East in terms of being kind of the, the royal council, right? The king's council was often 70. And of course, the Sanhedrin become, you know, is 70. So this, this number is, is attested in other places in the literature of the ancient world. So, and, and in other uh, biblical references as well after, after the Pentateuch. So Moses goes out and he gathers 70 of the elders and stations them around the tent. God comes down in a cloud and speaks again, only with Moshe, and draws upon the ruach that was on Moshe and put it on the 70 elders. And when the ruach rests on them, it's, what does your translation say? They spoke in ecstasy. They spoke in ecstasy. Okay. When the ruach rests on them, the Hebrew is vayit nab'u. Lehit nave, from the word navi. The word is navi, prophet. Lehit nave is not to prophesy, really. It's to behave as a prophet. So it, is, it indicates a behavior, not prophecy. So what is that behavior? It's translated in your cases as ecstasy, 
because we think that's the behavior that is indicated in my excursus number 25, ecstatic prophecy in Israel and the ancient Near East. Um, there's a whole survey of the word lehit naveh. So if you're interested, please, bevakasha, I will copy it for you. Um, so it seems that there's a cognate at Mari, and Mari, the civilization at Mari, predates Israel by a thousand years. And already this word is already there a thousand years before ancient Israel. So it's a common, right, it's a common behavior among a certain class of prophets. Uh, and it seems to be the, the behavior that's associated with possessing the spirit of the deity. And Joshua doesn't object to the behavior of Eldad and Medad. He understands it actually as them being filled, possessed, if you will, of the spirit of God. And because they are possessed with the spirit of God, they behave, they exhibit the behavior of a prophet. So possibly this is ecstatic behavior, right? So think of a trance, you know, think of music that induces ecstatic behavior. These uh, 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 spoke in ecstasy but did not continue. What does that mean? So it seems they evidenced proof that they were possessed by the spirit of God and that's where it ended. They, their behavior seemed to be evidence that they were in fact now infused with some of the spirit of God that was on Moshe. What would that have looked like? What would that have looked like? But the point is that, is the point of this that uh, they evidenced that behavior, but they weren't present with the other 60, 68. So they they're were, back in camp. They were somewhere else. Everybody, the other 68 are here. They're all getting infused and excited and whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, out, outside the camp, these two guys who were on the list get the same behave the same. That's, is that the, that the point of this? Correct. A survey so, of the verb he not they act like a prophet, right? So it goes on and it says, thus, so, and shows that it sometimes designates ecstatic or trans behavior, but not always. Thus, the 70 elders literally act like prophets, right? This, this word, as do Eldad and Medad who remain in the camp. In either case, the precise nature of their behavior is not clear, although it is recognized by the people as prophetic, right? So clearly their behavior was evaluated positively. Possessing spirit was not demonic, but stemmed from yud heh vav -Hey. right? So it, it seems to mark that, that they were having the same experience as the 70 elders. And Joshua gets nervous. What is he nervous about? Not their behavior. They may usurp Moses. Moses was the one who was supposed to be speaking to God. And then Moses is incredibly humble here, which is the flip side of what happened before. So he is worried, Joshua's worried for Moshe, that if these guys start hitnaveng, that it's going to somehow be a challenge to Moshe's authority. And that makes him very nervous. Moshe, however, doesn't seem concerned at all, right? And is 
really humble about it, right? The rabbis point to this to talk about Moshe as being, right, the, one of the, most, the humble, most humble man ever to have walked the earth. Um, and Moshe says, what are you all excited about on my account? Yeah, I, wish I wish everybody was a prophet, right? And that God put God's spirit on all of them. And Moses then re-enters the camp together with the elders of Israel. That seems to be the end of like that part of the story. Um, let's go on to 31 and, and close it out. A wind from the Lord started up, swept quail from the sea, and strewed them over the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on that side, all around the camp and some two cubits deep on the ground. The people sat together in quail all that day and night and all the next day. Even he who gathered least had ten homers. Oh my goodness. And they spread them out all around the camp. The meat was still between their teeth, not yet chewed, when the anger of the Lord blazed forth against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. <laughs> that, that place was named Kibrod Hatava because the people who had because the people who had the craving were buried there. Then the people set out from Kibrot Hatava for Hazarot. Alright. So a wind comes from God and a ruach, right? So again, without reading the Hebrew, you miss the play. The ruach is put from Moshe onto the elders, and now a ruach comes, a wind, and sweeps quail from the sea and strews them over the camp, right? A day's journey on either side. There is, again, it's not something that doesn't happen. The quail make their journey from Europe across the Sinai Peninsula. When they come across the water, they're exhausted, and they drop exhausted, and we have um, accounts of them slaughtering quail in great numbers when the quail drop exhausted from their migration in the Sinai Peninsula. So that's not the issue. It's not that nobody's ever seen this before. It's that it happens right now. And to a magnitude not, you know, experienced heretofore. And they gather quail day and night and all the next day. And, and God has already said they're going to eat it for 30 days until it comes out of their nostrils. Therefore, it cannot mean that all the people started to eat it and dropped dead. Right? It, it seems, given the, the closing um, <coughs> sentences, is that the folks who started this business, right, who craved the cravings in the original uh, scene, that they're the ones who, as they eat the meat, are struck by a plague and die on the spot. Um, and, uh, and they were buried at this at this place, yes. Is there an actual place called So um, there is huge discussion about this and about they didn't set off. And if you compare it with the wilderness wanderings as it's recounted later, there's no command to break camp from between this place and that place. W what place is attested in the archeological record and which isn't, I don't know, but it is certainly discussed. So you can find that out. I don't know, you know, I don't know what they've equated this place with. In the, in the sign. So this was very interesting. He brought all that quail to children. I could do this. Now I'm going to pay for it. Some of the rabbis say it was, or some of the commentators say it was to show Moses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It was Moses God was answering, not the people. Right? Because Moses is going, really? Really? 600,000 people? Really? Where are you going to get enough meat? Right? And so it's, it's Moshe that God is answering. God's behavior here is strange because he created this entire situation and why should he get angry when he sees them doing what he set up? Which is? Well, he, he, told, he provided all this meat, insisted that they eat it, and here that they're doing it, and why did he get angry? So it's, it would seem, um, the only way really to make sense of it is that it was the original instigators that God eliminates. God has not forgiven them. The, that riffraff that was complaining and stirred up this whole business, God has not forgiven them and kills them as a result. Sarah? What, what do the words Hatara uh, actually mean? How do you translate those words? So kever is a grave. So this is one of those stories about how the elephant got its trunk. Why is that place called Grave, of craving. grave Place of Hatava? Right? Craving. Craving. Because Graves in Yiddish, they borrowed Taibe. Taibe. And that's, you know... He wrote Hatava, the graves of the craving, yeah. is what it actually means. Now, is there such a place? Likely something like that because often these are stories that explain how that place got its name. You know? Um, we, we don't know. But the, the, bear, the grave site of the craving was because this whole business happened there. And then they set out for Chatzay Road. I mean, I can look at my notes and see if they say what this place is. Hebrew, Hata'ava, Hata'avim is a verbal reference to the riffraff who felt a gluttonous craving, implying that the main body of Israelites escaped punishment. That's all I have on the name of the place. All right. So let's... Well, the ones who had the craving were the riffraff. So. Nachon. They were the ones who started this whole business, right? All right. So let's look at... Take... You should have two different commentaries. And I want to look at Jonathan Sachs. Although I gave you a lovely little story of the Pentaliyid here, uh, where this, where Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson feels that the Pentaliyid business comes from, and it, he believes it comes from our Parsha, is where what he heard from someone, from the Pentaliyid that drops out of one of the words, talking about the humility of Moshe. Pentalach also means the, uh, the vowels under the... Uh... What does? Pintalach. Are the dots? Under the uh, consonants. Yeah. I the did not know that. Isn't that right, sir? What? Pintalach. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you before. Well, uh, I'd say Pintalach are the vowels. Uh, the, the dots under... The dots. Yeah. So, so it's playing on Pintalayid, which is that yeah. dot right. of Jewishness within every member of the people of Israel, right? So it's a lovely thing that I, you can read at home. Well, it's I, the same as the Nikudim. Right? Lovely. A little Nikud that, right. And, and in mis Jewish mysticism, Nikud means that spot, that spark, that little, that little spark of God. All right, so 
Go to the third page of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And it begins, Moses never was that kind of leader, right? You can read the rest of this um, at home. Go to the second paragraph. It looks like this. The first word on that page is Moses never was. The last page. Okay? So go to the second paragraph. Moses, though, seems to have felt that the leader must do it all. He must be the people's father, mother, and nursemaid. He must be the doer, the problem solver, omniscient and omnicompetent. If something needs to be done, it is for the leader turning to God and asking for God's help to do it. The trouble is that if the leader is a parent, then the followers remain children. They are totally dependent on him. They do not develop skills of their own. They do not acquire a sense of responsibility or the self-confidence that comes from exercising it. So when Moses is not there, when he's right up on the mountain too long, the people panic and make a golden calf, which is why God tells Moses to gather a team of 70 leaders to share the burden with him. Don't even try to do it all yourself because it's not a good model of leadership. Not only is it not good for you, Moshe, but it's a bad model for the people. It's disempowering to the people. The great man theory of leadership haunts Jewish history like a recurring nightmare. And then we get some examples of, right, Samuel warning the people and Solomon and then the splitting of the kingdom, the success of the Maccabees, but then the Hasmonean kings become Hellenized and how bad that thing goes, drop down to the very bottom. Judaism is about diffused responsibility, making each individual count, building cohesive teams on the basis of a shared vision, educating people to their full potential, and valuing honest argument and the dignity of dissent. That is the kind of culture the rabbis inculcated during the centuries of dispersion. It is how the pioneers built the land and state of Israel in modern times. It is the vision Moses articulated in the last month of his life in the book of Devarim. This calls for leaders, and in reading this, all I could think about was Rabbi Rubin. This calls for leaders who inspire others with their vision, delegating, empowering, guiding, encouraging, and making space. That is what God was hinting to Moses when he told him to take 70 elders and let them stand with him in the tent of meeting. Quote, and I will come down and speak with you there, and I'll take some of the spirit on you and put it on them. God was telling Moses that great leaders do not create followers. They create leaders. They share their inspiration. They give of their spirit to others. They do not see the people they lead as children who need a father, mother, nursemaid, but as adults who need to be educated to take individual and collective responsibility for their own future. People become what their leader gives them the space to become. When that space is large, they grow into greatness. This is the synagogue model at its best, right? That, that leadership is about each of us, you know, taking the piece that, that, is, that we're interested in, that we're passionate about, that we're curious about, that, and, and that we grow, right, in our accepting of leadership positions and that we're a people who believes that's supposed to be shared among the people. And nowhere is that evidence better, I, I think, than in a synagogue like this one, uh, where that culture has been so amazingly and beautifully um, encouraged by 
a fantastic leader. Uh, so I'll share it with you and wish you good Shabbos. <laughs>